Please pray with me. O oh Lord, our God, how great you are. You reign, robed with honor and majesty. You put on strength as your belt. You are the king of kings. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Holiness adorns your house, O oh Lord, forever. Teach us to do your will so that we may please you, for you are our God. Let your good spirit lead us on level ground as we examine your word. Use me, your servant, to speak forth your truth with accuracy and in your power. May your word sanctify us through and through until we look just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that I pray. Amen. Who among you wants to be dishonored, despised, and devalued? I mean, what a revolutionary thought. It upsets our worldly minds. The world tells us we should be honored, loved, valued. We need to boost our egos and nurture our self-esteem. We need to be validated as a person, no matter how far off the mark we may be from our Creator's intentions. This is the world's powerful influence. This is worldly thinking, fallen thinking. In Revelation 18.5, the Apostle John uses the title Babylon to refer to our fallen world. He says, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter uses the title Babylon as a code name for Rome. Both Babylon and Rome represent our fallen world. Christians should be out of sync or out of step with this world. This truth is illustrated in Paul Bunyan's novel, Pilgrim's Progress. He weaves a tale about two believers named Christian and Faithful who emerge from the wilderness to make their way toward the celestial city. They journey on a path called the Holy Way, which leads them straight through an ancient town named Vanity Fair. Bunyan writes that in this town, such merchandise is bought and sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, titles, countries, kingdoms, lust, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, as whores, bawds, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. At all times, one can see jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, rogues, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swearers, and that of a blood Vanity Fair is our fallen world. Christian and faithful did not fit in with Vanity Fair. Their dress was different, their language was different, their interests were different, and their values were different. As true believers, everything about them was different from the worldlings of Vanity Fair. Is this true of you and me today? Are we living as the world? or as God's covenant people. Peter teaches us that because Christians are sojourners and exiles, 
journeying through this very fallen world, they must place a strong emphasis on separation, a healthy, holy disregard for the world and its inhabitants. This is hard. We will most likely be dishonored, despised, and devalued for our choice to be holy. Still, 1 Peter chapter 2 teaches us that God's covenant people live separated from this fallen world. Our two division describes God's expectation of all who are in Christ. He calls us to be sanctified and submissive. Our first division is sanctified, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Open your Bibles and follow along with me. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, Peter exhorted believers to love one another. He says that this is a mark of true holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25 reveals that this Christian love comes when believers are born again through the truth of the gospel. Gospel truth redeems us from the desires of our flesh. True believers do the ongoing work of putting their sin nature to death. This is a lifelong work of the Holy Spirit, known as sanctification. He does the work of sanctifying believers, but he requires our cooperation. This is accomplished by obedience to God's word. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter continues to speak about holy living. Verse 1 says this includes putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Initially, in saving faith, we respond by submitting to the claims of the gospel, hearing and heeding the truth of God revealed in his word. But God's word also cleanses believers from their sin, not for salvation, but for sanctification. Edmund Clowney notes that Christian baptism carries a deeper symbolism than the ceremonial washing of the Old Covenant. It symbolizes not only the removal of all defilement, but also the renewing of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of new life. Not only are we purified by the Word, we are also given new birth by the living and enduring Word of God. In verse 2, Peter continues the theme of new birth or new life in Christ by referring to believers as newborn infants. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. This refers to the power of God's word, which actively works to sanctify believers. God's covenant people are called to live separated from this fallen world. Pure spiritual milk is needed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, spiritual milk refers to elementary or basic teachings. The Apostle Paul encouraged his readers to move from consuming spiritual milk to consuming spiritual meat. Here, Peter's emphasis is on the purity of God's word. 
when God's word is taught in all its purity, verse 3 says that believers grow up into salvation. They are sanctified, separated by God for God. In verse 3, Peter also gives us the motivation for growing in holiness because we have tasted that the Lord is good. Anyone who has truly tasted the goodness of God through his living and abiding word develops an addiction to his word. Like a diabetic addicted to sugar, we cannot get enough of God's word. Does that describe you? Do you long for pure spiritual milk? Are you nourishing your soul with enough spiritual milk to grow up into your salvation? If not, come to Jesus. Verse 4 is an invitation to do so. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus is the living stone that Peter speaks of here in the sight of his father he is chosen and precious in the sight of sinful mankind he is rejected when peter says as you come to him he includes a believer's initial repentance and faith the greek used here also implies a continual drawing near this is necessary if we are to become living stones after the example of the living stone, Jesus Christ. Verse 5 speaks of spiritual sacrifices that are the grateful response of a redeemed people, saying, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, we no longer make sacrifices on an altar to atone for our sins like the people of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself as the perfect lamb of God on the cross once for all time for all sin. As our great high priest, his sufficient sacrifice fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system and rendered it obsolete. If our spiritual sacrifices are to be acceptable to God, they must be given through Jesus Christ. He must be our Savior. By grace, through faith, we must receive Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross as payment for our own personal sin. Then we must live differently. All genuine believers must live separated from this fallen world. God has separated them to be built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices of lives marked by worship and holy living. As a holy priesthood, all believers have an intimate and immediate access to God, and they serve him with wholehearted obedience. 
Peter emphasizes this truth by quoting the prophet Isaiah and Psalm 118 in verses 6 through 7. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It is interesting that Peter, the one Jesus named the rock, calls Jesus a stone, and not just any stone, a living stone, and a cornerstone. A cornerstone is a stone placed where two walls come together. It provides structural stability to a building. Jesus Christ built his church, the body of believers, on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles who are in turn held together by himself as the chief cornerstone. This is who Jesus is to believers. Because of him, they will never be put to shame. But for unbelievers, verse 8 says he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. In this verse, we see the often perplexing twin doctrines of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The unbelievers disobey the word. They are responsible before God to obey. But they have been destined to do so by the sovereign will of God. Of this, R.C. Sproul comments, God's decrees of election and reprobation were given in light of man's fall into sin. God did not, before time began, consider an unfallen human innocent humanity out of which he destined some for salvation and others to damnation. Rather, when God was considering the human race, he knew them prior to the fall as a mass of perdition, and out of this mass of fallen, unbelieving, disobedient humans, God chose sovereignly to bestow his saving grace on some but to allow others to do what they pleased. God simply passed them over. No one in this equation is subjected to divine injustice, but the redeemed receive grace and the unredeemed receive justice. Sproul goes on to highlight how no one is worthy. We all fall short of the glory of God. He says that when we complain about the fairness of God's sovereign choice and salvation, our complaining reveals how obstinate our hearts are toward the majesty and sovereignty of God. Praise God for his mercy. That is exactly what Peter does in verse 10. But first, he again turns his attention to the redeemed believers. In verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Chosen, elect 
royal, holy, God's own possession. What incredible descriptors of those who are in Christ. Do these words describe you? They should. God's covenant people live separated from this fallen world. A believer's identity is one of being chosen by God to serve him in the role of royal priest, set aside or sanctified to come together with other believers as a holy nation. All believers have been redeemed by God, purchased with the precious blood of Christ to be God's own possession. And his priest, his possession, have a purpose to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called them out of darkness, the darkness of sin, into the marvelous light of his holy countenance. His light is marvelous. He is the light of the world. To underscore the believer's status as God's treasured possession, Peter quotes from the prophet Hosea, who prophesied about God's pursuit of Israel after he had rejected her in judgment for her sin of idolatry. Once his judgment was complete, he extended mercy. That is what you see in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter uses this Old Testament reference to teach that God's mercy had been extended to undeserving Gentiles and Jews. They are now God's covenant people. He expects them to live separated from this fallen world. What are sojourners and exiles to do as they journey toward holiness while they live in Vanity Fair? How do they live in this fallen world without being contaminated by it? He gives us the answer in verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So first, God's covenant people must abstain from passions of the flesh which war against their souls. Believers are born of the Spirit into a battle which is spiritual. As spiritual warriors, believers rely on the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence and power to repel the lust and the temptations that war against them. To abstain is to cut off or to literally distance oneself from fleshly lust and desires. This is depicted in the Old Testament circumcision commanded by God. Believers must walk separated from this fallen world because their citizenship is in heaven, not Vanity Fair, not Babylon, not Rome, not Houston. Second, Peter urges his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ to keep their conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Their holy conduct 
is their witness to the watching fallen world. They will see the good deeds of God's covenant people and glorify God on the day of visitation. In the Old Testament, the day of visitation referred to God's coming in judgment as well as his coming in mercy. Peter uses the phrase to refer to the day of Christ's return or the second coming of Jesus Christ. Commentator David Helm says that our works will on that day be seen for what they are and shall give God great glory. Believers live holy, honorable lives to glorify God by passionately and intentionally pursuing Christ's likeness. This means that our journey toward holiness involves an intentional pursuit of Christ's likeness. That is our first truth. The journey toward holiness involves an intentional pursuit of Christ's likeness. If God were to examine your life, what pursuits would he uncover? How are you pursuing the lust of this fallen world rather than the holiness God demands of his people? How might you instead cooperate with the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work? The heart of our sanctification is rooted in Christ himself. God's people separate themselves from the world's evil, fallen system to Jesus Christ. Gradually, our worldly pursuits are transformed until the only pursuit our heart desires is the pursuit of Jesus. Again, this sanctification is a divine work. The key is to center our affections on him by spending lots of time in his word, in prayer, in worship, and with the body of Christ. As we do, he changes us. So come out of the world. This world is not falling. It is already fallen. One man describes it this way. Its people are already enslaved, fettered in the chains of self-forged, self-chosen moral anarchy. Millions are morally diseased yet have no longing to be healed. They not only reject the only one who can save them from their disease, they openly sneer, hate, mock, and caricature him. An unprecedented tidal wave of commandment-breaking, God-defying, soul-destroying iniquity sweeps the ocean of human affairs. Never before have men in the masses sold their souls to the devil at such bargain prices. Directed by the devil, the world has given a new injection to the flesh. One of the signs of the last days is that men are lovers of pleasures. The mad merry-go-round of sensuality is filled with millions awaiting their turn for initiation into iniquity. Does that sound a little like Vanity Fair? Babylon? Does it sound a little like our world today? Preacher Leonard Ravenhill wrote that in 1959. It is sobering how little has changed 
and God sees it all and remembers it all. What more do you need to motivate you to intentionally pursue Christ-likeness? The journey toward holiness involves an intentional pursuit of Christ-likeness. It also requires a submissive spirit. Peter shifts from our sanctification to our submissiveness in our second division. Submissive, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the, governor, to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The key to a proper understanding of Christian submission is found in the phrase, for the Lord's sake. Believers are to do everything unto the Lord or for the Lord's sake. They are to do everything for God's glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. Christians are little Christ. They represent him in this fallen world. Therefore, Peter says, believers are to be subject to every human institution, submitting to the authority of human governments. He mentions emperors and governments and, he and governors, and he says they are sent by the Lord to punish evildoers and praise doers of good. Now, this is the ideal of human government. The reality is that many human institutions and their leaders are tarnished by sin. However, that does not mean we can disobey the law. When we find it impossible to respect the person leading an institution, we must still respect the institution. Throughout history, the church has lived and thrived in all kinds of political systems. We are sojourners and exiles living in this fallen world, having been redeemed or purchased out of its sinful fallenness by the precious blood of Christ. We must live with integrity, upholding the laws that God has ordained or allowed in our human societies and institutions. In verses 15 through 16, Two more key phrases help us understand this difficult command. In verse 15, the phrase is the will of God. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In verse 16, the phrase is servants of God. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Doing the will of God as servants of God equals doing it for the Lord's sake. In God's sovereign will, believers silence or literally muzzle the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 16 refers to a believer's freedom, but that freedom is not absolute. It is the freedom believers have in Christ. Christians submit to human authorities because they are first submitted to Christ. They have the mind of Christ toward those in authority. 
They have the love of Christ for others. When believers submit to Christ, they use their freedom to do his kingdom work while living in but separated from this fallen world. God's covenant people, they live separated from this fallen world. His covenant people belong to him. They are his servants. In verse 17, Peter gives his readers an easy to remember summary. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The verb tenses indicate a constant maintaining of these attitudes for a Christian. Because God has sovereignly ordained all things in the universe, believers must keep honoring everyone, keep loving their brothers and sisters in Christ, keep fearing God, and keep honoring the emperor or their human authorities. However, there are times when honoring human authorities do it requires divine discernment. If those in authority over you order you to do something that is ungodly or unbiblical, you can respect the institution, but disobey the leader's edict or law. The rest of chapter 2 addresses a situation just like that by giving us God's expectation of Christian slaves. Slavery was very common in Peter's day. Today, we relate Peter's instructions to slaves and their masters to the employee-employer relationship. In verses 18 through 20, Peter instructs believers to be submissive to those who are over them. They are to be subject to their masters with all respect, even if those masters are unjust. When an employer treats you badly or unfairly, God expects you to respond with a Christ-like submission, trusting in his sovereign ability to fight your battles. This is never easy, and it requires full reliance on the Holy Spirit's power. The result, though, honors and glorifies God. Peter ends this instruction by saying, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In fact, God calls his, his covenant people to the same kind of suffering as his son. Jesus endured unjust suffering. His people are called to do the same. Warren Wearsby says in, in verses 21 through 25, Peter encourages believers to suffer well to God's glory by painting three pictures of Jesus Christ. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus is presented as our example by the way he lived his life. He suffered, though he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was reviled, but he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God alone is the just judge. Jesus trusted his heavenly father to care for him in his suffering. You and I can do the same. We have the assurance that ultimately God will set all things right. 
And no matter the injustices we experience now, we will one day live forever with him in glory. Suffering is part of living in a fallen world. Therefore, Christians do suffer. Christians will suffer. Even when they serve God in the will of God, Christians suffer. Opining on, on Christ's suffering as he submitted to God's sovereign plan of redemption, Wearsby writes, Jesus proved that a person could be in the will of God, be greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. Jesus suffered and died for our sin, and he was sinless. Believers are not exempt from suffering. Peter continues to address suffering in the next few chapters. For now, his focus is on a believer's submission in the midst of suffering. In verse 24, he points to Jesus as our substitute in his death on the cross. He suffered and died in our place to pay the death penalty that our sin earns us. He did this so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter ends this thought by quoting Isaiah 53, 5. By his wounds, you have been healed. This does not refer to physical healing. Believers suffer from many different physical ailments for which there is no cure. Peter and Isaiah are speaking of spiritual healing. Jesus Christ was wounded that we might be healed. He died that we might live. He gives believers his righteousness so, so that they might live to righteousness. And one day he will return in glory and give his covenant people glorious new bodies that are completely immune to disease, sickness, and weakness. Hallelujah. What a savior. He is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The last picture of Christ that Peter paints is in verse 25. He is depicted as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Peter writes, For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When we as sinners are straying like sheep, unable and unwilling to come to God, our good shepherd searches for his sheep until he finds every last ignorant, lost, wandering, imperiled one. He loves his sheep. He laid down his life to save his sheep. Once they are safely in the fold of his flock, he oversees or watches over his sheep as the overseer of their souls. He protects them and perfects them by the power of his Holy Spirit. His perfecting work is his sanctifying work. Note that believers return to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. This requires a submissive spirit. This is the point that Peter drives home in this section of chapter 2. The truth that captures what he teaches is our second truth. The journey toward holiness 
involves a spirit that is submissive to God's sovereign will. What is keeping you from wholehearted submission to live in God's will as his servant? What will it take for you to submit to the leading of your good shepherd? How often do you return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul? As Christian and faithful journeyed through Vanity Fair, they were so different that they were not well received. What particularly upset the townspeople was their attitude toward the goods displayed at the fair. When the vendors called to them to look at their goods, they turned away, putting their fingers in their ears and crying out, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. When mockingly asked what they might be interested in buying, they gravely replied, we buy the truth. A crowd gathered to taunt and revile them. The ensuing disturbance led to their arrest. After being questioned, they are severely beaten and locked up in an iron cage to be made a spectacle to the multitude. Under these trying circumstances, Christian and faithful conducted themselves so very wisely and soberly that some of the townspeople began to sympathize with them and urge their release. The sovereign will of God often takes believers through a place like Vanity Fair, through the fallen world. Christians live in this fallen world. They serve God in this fallen world. As they do, they must fight to remain surrendered and submissive to God's sovereign will, just like Christian and faithful. The journey toward holiness involves a spirit that is submissive to God's sovereign will, even when it leads to suffering. Who among you wants to be dishonored, despised, and devalued? Jesus Christ was perpetually dishonored, despised, and devalued by the world. Believers who journey toward holiness through this fallen world will be dishonored, despised, and devalued. But for the joy set before us, we journey on. The world, its lurking lust and sewers of sin, our cities alive with impurity, must be rejected, put off. If we fail to do so, we will become like the world with bankrupt souls, so blinded to our sin that it no longer tears at our souls. But when you take a stand against this fallenness, the world will hate you, just like it did Christian and faithful and Jesus Christ. Do not let vanity fare ensnare you. Do not allow Babylon to detour you or to cause you to stumble. God's covenant people live separated from this fallen world, hating and fighting against iniquity, injustice, and impurity. Join your Savior, your good shepherd, and the overseer of your soul. Follow him as he lovingly leads his covenant people 
in their journey through this fallen world toward holiness. Live sacrificially for the one who was your sin sacrifice, even if it means you are dishonored, despised, and devalued by this fallen world. And you, my friend, will finish your heaven-bound journey with great joy and to the praise of God's glory. Please pray with me. Oh God, we stand in awe of your magnificent holiness. We praise you for choosing to set sinners like us apart as your own treasured possession. Sanctify us, Holy Spirit. Keep us in hot pursuit of the holiness that pleases you. Transform us into living and holy sacrifices which are acceptable to you. Grow us in humility, patience, and love for you and for others each time we spend time in your word. Renew our minds with your glorious truth and move our hearts to wholehearted submission to your good, pleasing, and sovereign will. We love you, Lord, and we want to live to the praise of your glory. It is in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen.